0: From the letter to James, the second chapter, verses 1 through 17, let us listen again for a word from God this morning. My brothers and sisters, when you show favoritism, you deny the faithfulness of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has been resurrected in glory. Imagine two people coming into your meeting. One has a gold ring and fine clothes, while the other is poor, dressed in filthy rags. And then just suppose that you were to take special notice of the one wearing fine clothes, saying, here's an excellent place, sit here. But to the poor person, you say, stand over there or sit here at my feet. Wouldn't you have shown favoritism among yourselves and become evil-minded judges? My dear brothers and sisters, listen. Hasn't God chosen those who are poor by worldly standards to be rich in terms of faith? Hasn't God chosen the poor as heirs of the kingdom he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Don't the wealthy make life difficult for you? Aren't they the ones who drag you into court? Aren't they the ones who insult the good names spoken over you at baptism? You do well when you really fulfill the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself. But when you show favoritism, you're committing a sin, and by that same law, you're exposed as a lawbreaker. Anyone who tries to keep all of the law, but fails at one point, is guilty of failing to keep all of it. The one who said don't commit adultery also said don't commit murder. So if you don't commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you are a lawbreaker, in every way then speak and act as people who will be judged by the law of freedom there will be no mercy in judgment for anyone who hasn't shown mercy Mercy overrules judgment My brothers and sisters what good is it if people say they have faith but do nothing to show it Claiming the faith claiming to have faith can't save anyone can it Imagine a brother or sister who is naked and never has enough food to eat. What if one of you said, go in peace, stay warm, have a nice meal? What good is it if you don't actually give them what their body needs? In the same way, faith is dead when it does not result in faithful activity. Friends, this too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I am now convinced that there is something holy about the church balcony. Yeah, don't get too excited. But there's something about those 12 feet of height above your fellow worshipers that sets you apart. There's something thinner in the air up there that smells a little sweeter, kind of like heaven. There's something about those higher pews that lift you just that much closer to God. In the balcony, there's a sacred silence. I don't know if you knew this. There's a sense of peace that drowns out the noise and the conversations down below, and it allows you to simply be present. You know, even during the week when this sanctuary lays empty, I sometimes find myself leaving my desk in the office and settling into one of those upper pews for that sacred silence. A chance to sit and to be still and to pray. But, to be fair, the balcony isn't for everyone. Those folks will tell you firsthand. For some people, they're just too young to appreciate that sacred place. When I was growing up, there was a group of us youth who believed that the silence of the balcony constructed somewhat of an invisible wall between us and the congregation, one that cannot be penetrated by laughter, or snores, or paper airplanes. That was until the preacher stopped his sermon one Sunday morning and only resumed when we had relocated ourselves to the pews where our parents happened to be sitting. But it's not just for youth. Some folks just prefer to be in the heart of the action, to see and be seen, shaking hands, talking about last night's game, welcoming new friends. For those folks, the balcony silence is actually overwhelming and almost claustrophobic, so a seat on the sanctuary floor is where they might call home. Now in my experience there's a special kind of person who fits best in the balcony. They tend to thrive in that sacred silence. They prefer a handful of people to the crowds and they're oftentimes those volunteers who almost never get seen. They work outside of the limelight to make sure that communion bread is baked and ready to go on Sunday mornings and they arrange bags of chips and cookies for the all-church picnic. But there's another aspect that seems to unite these folks. Whether because of their rather elevated position or simply because of who they are, balcony people notice things. Things which those of us down here don't and can't always see. Balcony people notice when the preacher's stole is, is a little crooked, or when the baptismal font is off-center. Balcony people recognize who sit together each week and who's been absent for a while. Balcony people catch the bulletin doodlers and the, the watch glancers and the phone checkers. The balcony people also see whose hands clasp a little tighter for prayer whose hugs hold on for just that one second longer, whose body relaxes when we are reminded of God's forgiveness for us each week. Balcony people notice things about the church, things which those of us down here don't and can't always see, which makes me think that the author of James's letter was a balcony person, Honestly, we don't know much about the author of this letter. Some theologians believe that it is James, the brother of Jesus, who penned this letter. Others contend the name is simply a pseudonym. Early church fathers debated on whether or not it should even be included in Scripture for its lack of theological depth. Details on when it was written and who it was written to are not just sparse, but they're almost non-existent. But even without all of that, we still get a good picture of who this letter writer is. It's clear that James is someone who cares deeply for the church and its people. Like a good pastor, he doesn't just ramble on about theological concepts, offering lectures on sanctification and justification and transubstantiation. No. Instead, he writes about what faith looks like in the real world. So he plops down in one of those elevated pews and he begins to notice whose hands clasp a little tighter in prayer. He watches as body language shifts and changes. He sits and he watches who sits with who. And more importantly, he sees who gets left out. From the balcony, James can see the whole picture. He can watch as the church puts movement to its faith And so when he writes to them by saying, imagine two people come into your meeting, I imagine his request is not hypothetical, but actually based on his own observations. Imagine two people come into your meeting, one has fine clothes while the other is dressed in filthy rags. Then just imagine that you were to take special notice of the one wearing fine clothes saying, here's an excellent place, sit next to me. But to the poor person, you say, stand over there. Or, or, can you just imagine a brother or sister who's naked and never has enough food to eat? Imagine if one of you said, go in peace, stay warm, have a nice meal. I'm sure that it's this point in the letter that the people in the pews begin shifting their body weight around and glancing out the corner of their eye to notice who they're sitting next to and whose bellies next to them might be rumbling. It's at this point that they start realizing that his offer to imagine isn't really an invitation to wonder what if, but rather to take a hard look at what is. One commenter on the book of James suggests that this particular congregation has actually fallen prey to the Apostle Paul that they've listened to so many of Paul's sermons outlining the systematic theology of the faith that they begin to neglect the practical gospel of Jesus. Which is probably why James offers this ending to his writing. Faith is dead when it doesn't result in faithful activity. Or in a more common phrasing, actions speak louder than words. I think many of us know that to be true. A number of years ago, while we were still living in South Carolina, I had a personal realization that I needed to start taking my health a little more seriously. I was overweight, I still am, I was stressed, I was unable to sleep, and I was, I was just downright grumpy all the time. And so I made the decision to start waking up at 5 a.m. three days a week and start working out. I bought new shoes. I bought new shorts. I even bought the the cup with the little ball in it that you shake up the protein mix in. I did all of it. I even joined a gym. But not just any gym. No, it's not the $10 a month for the treadmill and some, some weights. No, a gym gym. I joined a CrossFit gym. I heard some ooze, yeah, you know what I'm talking about. The particular one I joined was located directly behind William Bryce Stadium, the towering 80,000-seat arena that served as home to the University of South Carolina Gamecock football team. What I didn't know, and as it turned out, though, the gym right behind that stadium also served as the unofficial off-campus training center for all university sports. So on my first morning, this 30-year-old overweight preacher whose last athletic venture was getting kicked out of an intramural fraternity soccer game walked into the gym only to be met by a swarm of Southeastern Conference superstars. Texas learned about them last night. As you can tell, I didn't last long. And any spoken desire I had for health quickly faded when I went from just hitting the snooze button every morning to just turning the alarm off altogether. Actions speak louder than words, don't they? I think that's what James is attempting to remind the church he serves and the people he loves by asking them to imagine. Imagine a church. Imagine disciples of Jesus who can say all the right things. I believe in the Trinitarian nature of God. I believe Scripture is authoritative and inspired. I trust in Jesus Christ as Lord, but then hit snooze when it comes time to put movement to those beliefs. What does it say about our faith if we profess our praise for a God who gives justice to people who are oppressed, who gives bread to people who are starving, who frees prisoners, who makes the blind see, who straightens up those who are bent low? Faith in a God who protects immigrants and helps orphans and supports widows while we sing our hymns and sit on our hands. What it says is that faith is dead when it doesn't result in faithful activity. That actions speak louder than words. As you already know, today is kick-off Sunday, the start to our new program year. Melanie highlighted a ton of great classes and groups that are going to be meeting starting next week, but there are a whole host of other things going on. There are other classes and choirs and small groups and Bible studies and service projects and advocacy work and committee leadership, all things that help us put movement to the faith we claim here in these wooden pews each week. It's how we give life to this faith that it has been handed down to us every generation. So for just a moment, for just a moment, I want you to close your eyes and just imagine with me, imagine a community of disciples, imagine a church, one that is less preoccupied with saying the right things, but actually doing the right things. Imagine a church that commits itself to partnering with God in giving justice to people who are oppressed in offering bread to people who are starving. Imagine a church that follows God's lead in protecting immigrants and helping orphans and supporting widows all while we sing our hymns and study our scriptures and attend our small groups and vote on church business. Imagine a church like that. Faith is dead when it doesn't result in faithful activity. Can you just imagine that kind of church? Hmm. May it be so here. In the name of the Creator, the Christ, and the Spirit. Amen.